or Revelation 1. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches thus far. After the proclamation of the gospel, let's sing together from hymn 67, the stanzas 1 and 7. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the invitation is out again. Today, our host, the Lord Jesus Christ, is once again inviting us to partake of his supper, his special meal. He bids us eat the bread and drink from the cup in remembrance of him. But who is he? Who is this host? Well, you can say, of course, he's many things. He's the one who was born as a babe in Bethlehem. He's the God-man who came to Israel. He is the great teacher of his people. He is the awesome miracle worker. He is the sacrifice for our sins. He is the mediator of the covenant. Indeed, he is many, many things. This host of ours is truly, truly remarkable. But nevertheless, listing all of these things about him still does not quite do him justice. No, if we want to do that, then we also need to add something. We need to add what is written in the book of Revelation about him. We need to add that to the mix. For there we see him in a new and startling way. And as a matter of fact, there we see him, and that's the theme this afternoon, as someone like a son of man. So someone like a son of man. Now, what does that mean? Well, beloved, it's an expression that you find back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 13, and it pretty well captures what you also have here in these verses 12 to 20. Let's consider these verses together for a moment. You know, Revelation 1, verse 11 ends with a loud voice. It says, a voice like a trumpet, and the voice was told John he has to write. But now in verse 12, John turns in the direction of this voice, and when he does so, what does he see? Well, he sees seven golden lampstands, 
And then among these lampstands, he says he sees someone like a son of man. Well, who is this son of man? Well, in the first place, he's very, very hard to describe. John resorts to all kinds of similes, expressions that begin with as or like. He's someone with hair as white as snow, he says. His eyes are like blazing fire. His feet are like bronze. His voice is like the sound of rushing waters. You get the sense that words can hardly describe, much less capture, what John is seeing before his very eyes. And then, too, John adds, there are his clothes. He's dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet. And he has a golden sash around his chest. And you know what that means? That means that this is someone of great importance. Slaves and workers wore short tunics. If you were important, you wore a robe down to the ground. And if you were really important, then you wore a sash over top of that robe. And that's what the Son of Man has. Next, we come to his features. And what do we see? Well, we see that his head and his hair are white like wool. And as such, we need to understand this is a pointer back to the Old Testament and to the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 9, where we are introduced to another mysterious figure called the Ancient of Days, and whose clothing, it says, are both white like snow, white like wool. In other words, John is describing someone here as being pure, being even divine, being holy. And then there are his eyes. Notice he has blazing eyes. And what that means is that these are the kind of eyes that see everywhere into everything from which nothing in all the universe can ever be hidden. These eyes are penetrating. These are all seeing x-ray-like eyes. And notice to them you need to add remarkable feet. His feet, it says, were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And what this really means is that these feet, they have stability and they have strength. This person is not very soon going to be pushed over or shoved aside. Impossible not with these kind of feet. And two remarkable eyes and feet, however, are also added a rumbling voice. His voice, John says, was like the sound of rushing mighty waters. And that means this voice is loud. It dominates over everything else. In other words, this is the kind of voice that's not going to be drowned out by the rhetoric and the propaganda in this world. It will be heard, no matter what. And so we have a picture of what this Son of Man looks like, a kind of picture. But notice also John adds something else, what this Son of Man has. In his right hand, he holds seven stars. I think that's hard for us to imagine. You know, we know it's from Scripture, the right hand stands for the hand of safety, the hand of protection, sometimes the hand of power. And, and secondly, stars, they represent light and even fullness of light because notice there are seven 
stars. And thereafter, John goes on to describe what must strike us as perhaps the most strange thing of all, and that is, out of his mouth comes a sharp, double-edged, two-sided sword. And we ask ourselves, what is this? It's getting weirder and weirder, isn't it? And what does that mean? Well, again, you have to break it down. What's a double-edged sword used for but for fighting and conquering, for promoting or moving forward as well as protecting? And what's a mouth good for but for speaking? So what we have here is someone who conquers not with a real sword, but with the sword of his mouth, with his words, with its truth. With those words, he advances the cause of his kingdom, and with those words, he defends the cause of his kingdom. And finally, there is one more aspect to consider about this person, and it has to do with his face. It, we are told, was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. What is the sun but our source of light and warmth? And what does the sun represent in all of its brilliance but the glory of God? And so, beloved, taken together, what John gives us here in Revelation 1 is a most amazing, but at the same time disturbing, unusual, and stunning description. It's a description of our Savior, but it's a description unlike any other we've ever seen. We've never seen our Jesus like this, right? We've never even dreamed of him being like this. Just when we think that we know him and are comfortable with him, we are told this. And that represents quite a shock to the system. And you know, there's no doubt that John would agree. He would agree with our assessment. For notice what happens to John. Once he he sees all of this, once he sees the the Son of God, of man in all of this glory and power and light, it says, I fell at his feet as though dead. So it absolutely floors him. It knocks him off his feet. And he faints away. But then notice next what happens. The hand, the right hand, that holds those seven stars, reaches out to him and restores him and pulls him up. In other words, the hand that controls the universe is personal and very direct. It revives, comforts, and consoles. So thus far the Son of Man... But you notice the vision isn't over because there's something else that happens. The Son of Man begins to speak. And notice, if you analyze what he next says, there are four things. First of all, he identifies himself. He says, I am the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. And what that means, of course, is I'm the beginning, I'm the end of everything. 
Nothing ever happens in this world, in this creation, outside of the will of the Son of God. Both its beginning and its end and everything in between is his. Time is his. History is his. And secondly, he goes on and he says, I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades or the grave. So this is also the one who has and possesses life. Who knows death, has experienced it, and who has conquered the grave. It says he possesses the keys of death and the grave. That means he opens and he closes. He has access. And that means he has access to the greatest power imaginable. Do you know anyone who has the key of death and the grave besides him? Anyone at all? Any guesses? There isn't anyone, is there? You know, from time to time, we gather to bury a loved one. Before or after a special service in the church, we make our way to the cemetery and we place the body, as it were, in the ground. But don't be mistaken, we don't forget it, we don't abandon it. No, we, as it were, place it in the hands of the living one, the key holder, the conqueror over death and the grave. For we know that one day he's going to use his awesome power to open that grave and to give new life to the believer that we just buried. So thus far, the Son of Man has identified himself and his power. And notice next and third, he issues a command to John, and John is told to write. He's to relate what he has seen in the past. He's to relate what he sees in the present. He's to relate also what he is to see in the future. John is going to write three-dimensional history. You're going to capture all of it. And what is it about? Well, in the fourth place, the Son of Man says that this is going in the direction of the churches. The Son of Man explains the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And now, as you can imagine, there's a lot of speculation about who are the, the seven angels and who are the lampstands. Some say they're heavenly messengers, angels. Others say, no, they're elders or pastors of those local churches. But, you know, no matter how much we debate and discuss, certainty is impossible. What is certain, however, is that these churches are going to be the recipients, the address of what John here sees and what John here writes. And first, what he writes is supposed to go to those seven churches in Asia Minor, a very small part of the earth. But thereafter, it's supposed to go out to churches all around the world. The thrust of this message isn't just limited, 
And the target of this message is exceedingly broad. The Son of Man is speaking here, identifying himself both to his people then and to his people ever since. Of course, at this point, you might be inclined to say, well, just a minute, uh, why? Why does Jesus appear like this to John? Why does he come across as so indescribable, overwhelming, even in a kind of intimidating sort of way? Well, beloved, in the first place, it has everything to do with those churches who are the first address of his letter. You know, his people at that time, when John is writing, even John himself, it says, have been exiled to the island of Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John is persona non grata in the Roman Empire. And all of these churches that he's supposed to write to, they are being buffeted on every side. Oppressed, persecuted, tortured, slaughtered throughout the known Roman Empire. The emperor at that time, Domitian, has it in for them. And they're in desperate shape. They fear for their life and their continued existence. And depression and despondency are close at hand. You see, the church is rapidly becoming a church filled with fear and with suffering and with death and anguish. It's undergoing a baptism of fire and blood. Some people claim that the church today in Canada is undergoing the same thing. But I say to you, nonsense. Utter, exaggerated nonsense. Compared to this, compared to these times, compared to other times in the history of the church, compared to what believers are experiencing today in parts of Nigeria and India and China and so many of the other dark places of the world? If we make that kind of link, we don't know what we're talking about. But John did. These people are in the crucible of suffering and death. And in the midst of that situation, John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, points to a Christ who is great in his power, in his glory, in his might, in his being. And he's saying to his tortured people, don't despair. Recognize the greatness of your Savior. Know who's on your side. You have the ruler supreme. The conqueror divine. The protector almighty. The sovereign all glorious. The sustainer eternal. With you and for you. You see, beloved, the church then, as well as the church now and wherever, needs to embrace also this vision of her Savior. He's more than a miracle worker, he's more than a great teacher. He is glorious incomprehensible, mighty, and powerful in every respect. And when we have that kind of vision of our Savior, 
then we won't fear again. And we'll be filled with hope and confidence and courage. And it will enable you, as it has enabled the church of Jesus Christ throughout the ages, to stand fast in the face of the most terrible kind of oppression and persecution. And so, beloved, as we together celebrate the Lord's Supper this afternoon, remember who your host is. And that there is no host like this host. And there is no meal anywhere like this meal. There is no greater reason for praise and thanksgiving. We are the guests of him who is and will and shall overcome the world. Jesus Christ, the all-seeing, all-knowing, all-sustaining, all-powerful, glorious one, is on our side. And no matter what life or the world or the devil throws at us, even when death comes our way, we're still going to win. We're going to win in the end. The saints of God are going to win. Thanks to the great Son of Man. Amen.